sit up in school and in the classroom and draw pictures of the Supremes or the Temptations on my notebook, you know, while I was in class. So, I, you know, I've always wanted this. Luther is my, what I would call, the premier male vocalist in the industry. Nobody can handle a ballad or an up-tempo song like a Luther Vandross. His voice is his voice. It's not like his voice. And who's that? No. You know right away that that's him. He paid his dues, and so he knows what has to be done and what has to happen when you hit that stage. He's like like uh, Michael Jordan. He never misses. sings, you hear every note, and it's in tune. He could sing the telephone book, really and truly, and make that sound good. The voice. What can you say about the voice? The voice is, it's pure heaven. Luther has not only vocal prowess, but creative genius. Uh, his songs are always about love, because that was taught very much in my home. Love, 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 love. Oh, I love this music. I think I made two, three babies to Luther. Well, it... <laughs> you got 20-year-old people making love to Luther records that he put out 10 years ago. The man's, he's a legend. He's classic. Can I take you? I would describe my journey in this career as a chosen journey. You know, a lot of people's lives take courses that they don't have any say in. I feel very fortunate, very fortunate to have had a say in my life's destiny um, via music. You know, and it's, it's a wonderful thing to, to, A, live the life that you thought you might live as a, as a child, and to be, do something that is fulfilling and lucrative at the same time. The world almost missed out on the incredible talent of Luther Vandross. When his mother was pregnant in New York City and carrying him, she became very ill and almost died. When I was pregnant with Luther, I was at the Audubon Ballroom dancing. I was in my seventh month. And it never bothered me because I danced with all my children. But this one particular time, I passed out. And when I woke up, I was in Bellevue Hospital. And uh, the doctor, he asked my husband, uh, your wife's appendix has ruptured and you may not be able to save both, but uh, what should we do? My husband said, just save my wife. And uh, they were able to pull both Luther and I by the grace of God, and uh, he was born two months later, and he was in good health. He was a beautiful baby. I thought so anyway. After she had me, the doctor asked her if there was a middle name for the baby, 
my father's name was Luther, and uh, there was an ad on the nightstand. Remember the ad for pasta that said, Ranzoni, Sono Boni, Ranzoni is so good? She looked at the ad, she says, okay, Ranzoni. And that's how I got my name. <laughs> my family has never, ever called me Luther. They all call me Ronnie. I was one of four children, uh, myself, another brother, and two sisters. I was the youngest of, of these four. I was born in New York City, City, City. I was born in a set of projects called the Alfred E. Smith Projects on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, right at the, the Manhattan mouth of the Brooklyn Bridge. My father passed away when I was eight. Um, but I do remember certain things about him, you know, and about the fun I used to have with him. You know, for example, he used to wake my brother and me up at like three, four in the morning all the time and take us out underneath the Brooklyn Bridge, you know, over to the East River and tell us ghost stories. <laughs> and then my mother would start fussing at him because the teacher would call and say, well, why is Luther sleeping in class? <laughs> you know, he's, he's falling asleep on his desk so many mornings, you know, so she, she found out she had to stop him from doing that. I somehow gravitated to the music, you know, um, early on. I'd play the piano a little bit. I self-taught at a young age how to play piano. I don't know how I did it, but I just picked out the songs. My fingers were too small to play everything I wanted to. My mother had this club called the Pacino Club. There's this game called Pacino. They had a meeting, and it was at each of their respective houses. My mother used to always bring me to those meetings to sing for her girlfriends. And they thought he was fantastic. I said, Luther, you want to perform? And he would say, he never smiled much. He would say, all right. And he'd come in, he'd sing, and walk right back out. I would do songs by the popular singers of the day, which, who were Baby Washington. There was a, a singer named Baby Washington. And of course, the Shirelles. The Shirelles were the absolute cat's meow back then. As a child, instead of wanting different things, Luther always wanted music. So I says, Dear Luther, why you want records all the time? And he says, I want records until they're as tall as me. I would ask him, what do you want to do when you uh, grow up? would say, I don't know. But he would still play the music. When I was 13, uh, there was a DJ named Murray the K. Murray the K was the popular DJ in the Northeast there. And he used to give shows at this theater called the Brooklyn Fox Theater. And he would have like the Drifters and the Shirelles and Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells, you know, just a wide variety of music. On stage comes uh, this singer. I had never heard of her before. All of a sudden, she started singing. Anyone who ever loved doom, doom, would look at me doom, doom, and know that I love. Oh, why, why does it have to be?
They called Ma Rainey the mother of the blues. She blazed a trail that others would walk or sing down. 
she was a blues singer when there were no female blues singers. Gertrude Pridgett, who came to be known as Ma Rainey, started performing as a young teen. She was born in Columbus, Georgia in 1886 and started her career after winning a talent show. She toured in tent shows throughout the South and composed some of her own material, like Lost Wandering Blues and Dream Blues. Ma Rainey did not have a, a beautiful voice, but she knew how to deliver her songs. She had gold teeth and she wore a, a necklace of gold dollar pieces. She was known as the ugliest woman in show business, uh, although she really wasn't. By 1923, Rainey's growing popularity earned her a contract with Paramount Records. Paramount Records was a new company back then, and her records sold very well. She made more than 100 recordings from 1923 to 1928, and even performed with trumpet player Louis Armstrong. She traveled around in a bus and she had her own show. They had this huge replica of a phonograph on stage, and then the doors of this phonograph would open and she would step out of this, this phonograph. That was her big production number. When she met a young Bessie Smith on the road, she hired her to work in her show. It's rumored that Ma taught Bessie about life both on and off the stage. They were the original wild women in American music. Many blues women led Christian lives on Sunday mornings, but for the rest of the week were, were pretty out there and robust in terms of their sexual lives and their escapades and their gambling and their drinking and even drug use. They were bad women and they were singing in these clubs and they were, they were birthing rock and roll. I always thought I was so revolutionary coming out and then you hear Ma Rainey saying, I went out last night with some of my friends. Must have been women's because I don't like no man's. Come on, this was not popular stuff to be singing back then or stuff that they even talked about. The popularity of the blues faded in the 1930s and Ma returned home to Georgia where she ran two theaters. She died from a heart attack in 1939. She'll be She sang about loving women and faithless men, about pain and sorrow. She sang about joy, too. She was a black American, and from the pain and the suffering of her people, she helped create the first truly American music. She was Bessie Smith. Bessie Smith was born in a shack in Chattanooga, Tennessee. The year was probably 1894. We can never be sure, because in those days, the local white governments didn't pay much attention to such details as the birth certificates for black babies. In those days, a black child had even less of a future in white America than now. There were really only two possibilities. Either you settled for a life of scrubbing floors and tending other people's children, or you could be an entertainer. If you had talent, that was a way out. Bessie got out. At the age of nine on street corners in Chattanooga with her brother Andrew playing guitar, she began to sing for nickels and dimes. And when she was 18, her oldest brother Clarence got her an audition with a black traveling show, and she was hired mainly as a dancer. It was 1912. Silent movies were just beginning to catch on. The most popular entertainment of the day was called vaudeville, 
live shows with singers and dancers, comedians and acrobats, all sorts of acts that toured from one town to another, one theater to another. That was the kind of world Bessie became part of. <laughs> Gray, how's motherhood now that your kids are older now? Please tell us uh, how mother, uh, motherhood is going. I have Gr Macy Gray joining us here via telephone, ladies and gentlemen. It's different because I, I, I'm older too, so I'm, I'm much wiser as a mom. Anissa, my oldest, she was born when I was 26. So, you know, when you're 26, you're still growing up yourself. And I think young mothers, you know, salute to them, but they make a lot of mistakes because they're, they're still trying to figure it out too. Now that I'm older, I think I'm, I just, I'm, I'm, better, I'm a much better mother to them. Pretty, you know, it's more, it's more my change. They're going to be who they are, but I'm, I think I do a lot better as a mom than I used to, because I'm, uh, like, conscious and aware of things that I just really didn't even think about back then. <laughs> All right, uh, I have a question for you, but let me just uh, step out the room just for a minute. Okay, Macy. Uh, do you regret forgetting the lyrics to national to the national anthem? Do you regret that? Do you? <laughs> I mean, come on. I mean, tell us. Come on, tell us. It tell was very embarrassing because I didn't go up there purposely to forget the lyrics. But <laughs> I don't know. I, 
I practiced and I practiced. I got up there and they just, I, what happened was I skipped one of the verses and it just threw off the whole song. So anyway, the anthem as, just as a song is actually beautifully written, like what it's about. I think if you stand up for it or kneel for it, I think that's, I think that's fine. I don't, it's just, it's not Jesus. It's a, it's a song. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Well, Macy, you know what? You something else, girl. I'm telling you. How did you recognize your substance abuse? Um, and are you seeking help for that? I mean, uh, let, 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 let my audience know. You know what saved my whole life is vanity. I, I started looking like I got really, really skinny, like, like unhealthy skinny because I wasn't eating. My eyes got really dark. I looked 100 years old. I just looked bad. And, I, you know, luckily... You know, I'm a girl. I'm just vain. I was like, I can't be walking around looking like this. <laughs> and I stopped. Mm. It was really, and no one believes that that actually happened, but it did. Okay. I was literally looking in the mirror, and I just looked so bad. I was buying diamonds and stuff, and I, I was looking around, and they were gone. I don't know if people were taking them from me, or I was just losing stuff, and it just wasn't, it just wasn't the way to be rolling out. So I just, I, I went cold turkey, and, and I stuck with it, you know. I just quit. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad that you did and everything, you know, because you look be you look better. I'm glad I got a chance to video chat with you and add you to my podcast. Um, I have another question for you. Uh, who influences your style? Who influences your style? I think it's important for a star, like when when you look on stage. You know who told me this, Diana Ross? Like, you look on stage and. Your fans need to be able to say, like, oh, my God, look how she looks. Or where did she get that? Like, if you're on stage and you're wearing the same thing one of your fans is wearing, then, you know, that kind of separates you from being, like, you know. Mm -hmm. I don't know what she would call it, what it separates you from. But that was just advice she gave me really early on, and I just always have been devoted to that. So I always go all out on my outfit and get it custom made and stuff like that. Well, let me ask you this now. Is acting again in your future? Because uh, I know you were you were in another movie. Uh, I saw you in a movie, actually. Um, I forget the name of that movie. I'm going to have to look it up. But you were something else in that movie. Yeah, I actually just did a movie called Phobias. It's, it's my first horror movie. I played a woman who's who's doing her own plastic surgery. It's it's an indie, it's an indie movie, and they're going to go to all the festivals and then sell it. They're going to do that. But they will. It's actually really well written, and and I saw some of the some of the shots and stuff. It's like, it's beautiful, like the way she's shooting it. This is 28-year-old um, first-time director, and I think it's, I have a good feeling about it. Like, it's, it's, it's actually really well written. And, and really well done. Oh, okay. All right. If you are enjoying this um, interview and you would like to donate and learn more, then feel free. I'm enjoying myself. That's what it's all about, fun, having, having fun. And I'm having fun with Mr. Clean, and we're keeping it clean. So go ahead and 
come join my podcast and leave me a message letting me know how much you enjoy it ask me any questions and we can go from there just show and glitter and gleam and all those things and popularity it's show business so during the 60s the white stations were more responsive to play the black music and there was a lot of black music being played on the white stations at that time in the 70s that was not so. Mm. Why? Somehow or other, it reverted. I'd like to know why. Okay, I'm going to start on the ah uh-huh, That part right there, you know, and lay back a little more. When you come in on that. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Smokey Robinson is not dead. Today is December the 14th, 2020. He's not dead. This is just something that I would like to share, so... This is Smokey Robinson. For 20 years, one of the truly important talents in contemporary music. His influence has been felt as a performer, a writer, a producer, and as a vice president of a daring and controversial company, Motown Records. On stage, he presents an easygoing image. Off stage, he's a man of strong opinions and convictions who's had a significant hand in shaping today's musical trends. Smokey Robinson is a man worth getting to know. This is Bill Moran, freelance music critic for Billboard magazine. Going Platinum welcomes you to Motown. During the 15 years that I've been a critic and interviewer of major musical stars on radio, I've closely followed the ups and downs of Smokey Robinson's illustrious career. That famous phrase, the Motown sound, was used to describe his early million sellers. Ooh, baby, baby. Cracks of my tears and shop around. A more personal word, sensual, best describes his recent million seller, cruising. Mm-hmm. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to end that. 
And I hope you enjoyed it. You don't know nothing about that music. All, all you know is it sound good. <laughs> 1969. Yes, I want you to send me a message and tell me who's singing that. <laughs> <laughs> 